0: Good morning, Deer Creek. My name is Daniel. I'm the pastor here. Great to be with you all. Thank you for braving the snow. It's a wicked two inches out there. They might have to cancel school for it. All right. Uh, If you have your Bibles this morning, open up to the book of Revelation. We're in our fifth week now in the book of Revelation. And uh, if this is your first time at church, maybe uh, you don't own a Bible, want to let you know, we have Bibles actually out in the lobby area that we give away for free. So go and grab one. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Bible is divided into two sections. There's the Old Testament, that's about two thirds of the beginning. And then a third of the end of it, that's the New Testament. And Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It's the last book of the New Testament. So that's where you can find it. And we're looking this morning at Jesus' third letter to a church in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, it's in a city named Pergamum. And you can find that in chapter two, beginning in verse 12. And we're gonna read it together. But before we do, and before we hear from God, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful that we get to enter your presence and that we get to hear your voice, that you actually speak to us and that you have good words to tell us. And God, we pray that through what we're about to hear, I ask that you would correct our uh, things that need to be corrected. Maybe those are false beliefs or false practices. But God, you would also remind us and reassure us of your great love for us in sending your son, Jesus. And we pray that he would be central to this message. And we ask all this in the name of him, your son, by the power of your spirit. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, there's the word of God, God's letter. The teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's the word of God. Now, I used to be a youth pastor, and the great thing about being a youth pastor is you always get to have uh, the sex talk, right? The sex talk. And it usually happens in middle school or so, but every student has the same question, and it's usually this, how far is too far? At what point... With my girlfriend or boyfriend, how much can I do before I cross that line? I want to do right by God. I want to follow Jesus, but I need to know where the line is. I need to know how much is too much. Because once I know where the lines are, then I can stay out of trouble. But how much is too much? How far is too far? And I bet if we took a poll in here this morning, you know, that's not just a question that middle schoolers ask. We often ask kind of a similar question, don't we? We we want to know where the lines are. How much is too much? How far is too far? What can I get away with before I get into trouble? And it reveals something about our hearts when we ask something like that. When we ask that question, it reveals something about our hearts. Because when you think about it, we don't operate in other areas of our life with those kind of questions. Right. Think about it. My kids were just sick this week. It started out with my daughter Jane. She got sick, throwing up, and then it's just dominoes in the house. Then it was my daughter Annie, then it was my son Eli, and then it was me. And we're all getting sick, but nobody asks the question, hey, Dad, how close can I get to the edge of this bowl before I actually go over into the ground? Nobody ever says that, right? Dad, how, how close can we get to the edge of the toilet bowl before we soil the ground around the toilet? Or think about baking a cake, right? You're baking a cake and you're making a chocolate cake. Nobody asks, okay, how much of shepherd's pie can I put into this cake where it'll cease to be chocolate cake, right? How many peas? Is it six peas, seven peas? How about mashed potatoes? What about gravy? When will it stop being a chocolate cake and when will it be shepherd's pie? Nobody asks that. And see, when we look at other areas of life, it kind of sounds silly. But when it comes to the things of God, what... God says is true, we say, well, tell me how much I have to believe. Okay, tell me how much I have to believe or how much do I have to think about the Bible is true. What about all those embarrassing parts? What about the parts I disagree with? What about those parts that feel far-fetched, miraculous, or maybe archaic? And I actually kind of like that question because it's honest and it reveals something about our hearts, right? It shows that we, we often want to follow God, but usually we want to do it on our own terms. And it shows that we have these mixed hearts. Andrew Wilson, he's a writer and a pastor. He said, in many ways, the story of Christianity is full of good things. It's full of light, education, art, healthcare, abolition, compassion and justice. But there's an undeniable dark side. Attacking, burning, crusading drowning, enslaving, flogging, ghettoizing, hunting, imprisoning, anti-Semitic, Jew-hating, killing, lynching, and so on through the entire alphabet. What makes this difficult to stomach is that the people involved, as far as we know, loved God, followed Jesus, and had his spirit. So we have mixed hearts. All of us have mixed hearts. We're capable of immense good, but we're also capable of great evil and darkness. And that's, that's really one of the greatest criticisms of Christianity and people who follow Jesus, right, is that they're hypocrites, that they're hypocrites. We, we say one thing, but we live it out in a way that's contradictory to that. And if we're honest, right, it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not. We all know that's true about us, right? We're walking contradictions. My wife uh, and I, we joke around We give like these fake awards out to one another. She gave me the hottie recently, which is the husband of the year, H-O-T-Y. And she actually even made a big display of this. So it was uh, January 2nd and she comes out and she's like, well, it was a close race this year, but in 2019, Daniel Nealon wins the hottie. And she told me, you know, the kids are standing there, so she's just stroking my ego. But she said, you know, he's a great father. He's such a compassionate listener. He's such a great dad. And I'm just thinking, yeah, what about my bad breath? What about my crankiness in the morning? She didn't mention that I'm always lazy. She doesn't mention that I don't cut my tails, my toenails regularly enough for her liking. See, for all the good, we know that hiding behind the facade we put forth, there's kind of this sordid and dark person deep within, right? This brokenness within. There's a journalist who writes for the New York Times. His name's Will Storr. He writes, instead of acknowledging who we really are today, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. I think that's pretty insightful. And now we're in our third week looking at Jesus' letter to these seven churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor. Minor. And one thing we've noticed, and maybe you've noticed this too, is just how honest and truthful Jesus is about these churches. And what we know for sure is that Jesus loved Jesus these churches. He loved them. Remember how he described himself to the church of Ephesus? He said, he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What that meant is that Jesus is involved with these churches. He loves these churches. He is involved in their life and he knows them intimately and he holds them in his hand. He loves them. Or how he described himself to Smyrna last week. He said, I'm the one who has the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I'm the eternal God who came to die for you. I love you. Jesus loves these churches. And here's where we need to be actually pretty careful today because oftentimes when we think of love in our culture, our mind immediately goes to tolerating and accepting, to tolerance and acceptance of a person, even when they're engaged in behaviors that are damaging And Jesus, in his love for these churches, he's honest with them. He doesn't tolerate them because Jesus acknowledges who they really are, even the sordid, dark underbelly that they try to hide. And in love, he offers words of encouragement, but also sometimes words of warning. And we see that right off the bat in this letter to Pergamum. In verse 12, Jesus describes himself. He says he's writing to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And he describes himself as the one with the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. And now Jesus says the sword is coming out of his mouth. And this isn't a new image, by the way. Jesus is not like Picasso, right? Picasso tried to reimagine the world. He saw like a human being and he said, well, the eye's right there. Let's put it on his shoulder instead. Or here's somebody's mouth, let's put it on their forehead. And he wanted to reimagine the world in this unique way. But Jesus isn't doing that. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's taking these pregnant Old Testament images. Sometimes they're used in different ways, and he's applying them to himself. And Revelation does this throughout. In fact, there's 404 verses in Revelation. Do you know how many Old Testament references and echoes there are in this book? Scholars don't even know, but they estimate it as over 500, which means there's more references to the Old Testament in Revelation than there are verses. It's pretty wild. So Jesus isn't using a new image here. He's saying the sharp two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth, it means a number of things that we see in the Old Testament. The first thing it means is that he is a God of judgment. That he's a God who actually wields the sword of judgment. And a lot of this imagery actually carries over today. So if you were to go to the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., on one of the pillars of the Supreme Court, there's a picture of Lady Justice. Lady Justice. And Lady Justice has, you know, uh, uh, something covering, uh, covering her eyes, but she also wields this sword. And it's to say she will strike down anyone that she finds guilty and justice will be done here. And the same thing was true in the Old Testament. It was an image of God judging the nations. The sword was that image. Jesus is saying, I'm the cosmic judge of the universe and I'll hold every person to account, including every person in this room. But also notice this, this sword is double-edged. It's a two-edged sword. Did you catch that? Which means it cuts both ways. In Hosea chapter six, that was an image of a sword that both wounds and cuts down, but it was also one that heals and mends. It has the ability to fatally strike you if it hits you in the heart, but one that can also cut out a cancer if it needs to. So Jesus here says he is the one who speaks the words of judgment and who brings wounds and healing to those who hear him. And Jesus does that to his church in Pergamum here, right? He first commends them for what is true. He brings words of commendation. That's verse 13. He also criticizes what is false in verses 14 and 15. And then lastly, in verses 16 and 17, he declares judgment. So Jesus begins by commending what is true about this church and he commends them for their confidence, their loyalty to the faith. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, notice he describes Pergamum as where Satan's throne is. It's where Satan dwells. And scholars say, you know, that can refer to a number of different things, but most likely what it refers to is that in Pergamum, there was a temple to the Greek god Asclepius. And Asclepius was known as the god of healing. And when you look at, like, for instance, when you look at the American Cancer Society logo, do you know what's on it? It's a serpent. And same thing with Asclepius. He was the god of healing, and his sign was the sign of a serpent. So it was symbolic for this serpent and Asclepius That this place, this temple was a place of healing. Now, my kids, before we go to bed, we often read this this book. It's called Duck Rabbit. It's a really good book. Uh, And the, the premise of the book is there's two people and they see this one figure. And if you look at this one figure one way, it looks like a duck. But if you look at it another way, it looks like a rabbit. So there's this debate going back and forth throughout the book about what it is is it a duck or is it a rabbit? And I always ask Eli, Eli, is it a duck? Or a rabbit? And he says, it's a duck. And I ask Lainey, Lainey, is it a duck or a rabbit? And she says, and they're both wrong, it's a duck rabbit, right? (laughs) And Jesus here, he's kind of saying the same thing. He's saying, on the one hand, what the culture around you, Pergamum, sees is healing and liberation symbolized by this God, Asclepius. But what you see as the serpent who heals the Old Testament and what Jesus sees it as is the serpent, the one who entered the garden with lies and deception with the intent to kill and destroy, the one whom the Bible calls Satan. It's the throne of Satan. In other words, your culture, what it calls liberation and freedom and truth, I see it for what it really is. It's a culture of deception, lies, and bondage. It is satanic. Satanic. We don't talk that way today, do we? We don't talk that way today. We don't use words like satanic or evil, but Jesus regularly spoke this way because Jesus was never morally ambiguous or subtle when it came to matters of faith. He was always definitive. He was very much black and white. But our our culture, we love the gray, right? We love gray. We love the gray area. We like things to be gray. Just think of our movies, right? Remember Star Wars 1, 2, and 3, which were really Star Wars 3, 4, and 5 for whatever reason? Remember, it was very obvious there. There was the dark side, and that was evil. And then there was the light side, which was good. There was Darth Vader, which was evil. And then there was Luke Skywalker, who was good. And then there was, you know, all the other characters, and they fall into one of those two categories. But now, we're not so sure, right? So you go and watch the new Star Wars, and now the question is, was the dark side really that bad? Maybe, maybe we can actually use the dark side for good. Maybe we can use the dark side as a means to reach a better end. Maybe that's the dark side. It's not a matter of good and and evil. It's a matter of who holds it and how do they use it, right? We love the gray. Or think about the language we use. Think about the language we use about sexuality. Something that Jesus is going to address in this church here in Pergamum. We don't call it adultery. We call it an affair. Or we don't call it fornication, that sounds really heavy-handed. Instead, we call it experimentation or giving it the old college tries, we used to call it at Hastings College, right? <laughs> and we even, we even look sideways at good terms. Chastity? Chastity? That sounds like something Puritans would do. And Jesus uses this language to remind Pergamum then and us today that culture is not always neutral culture's not always neutral. We're not always on neutral territory. When you watch the NCAA football college national championship, they always play it on neutral turf, right? LSU and Clemson are playing, but they don't play at LSU and they don't play at Clemson. They go play on neutral territory because they don't want one team to have the upper hand. And Jesus is saying, that's not always the case when it comes to the world or it comes to the culture around you. Okay? There are points at which the world is in fundamental opposition to Jesus and the two do not mix. They're like oil and vinegar, right? You can put them into the same bottle, but they're going to separate. It doesn't matter how hard you shake it. The two just don't separate. And Jesus looks at this church in Pergamum and he commends them He says, you have been faithful and loyal in the midst of a hard and dark culture. Verse 13, he says, even though you're where Satan's throne is, he says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See, Jesus says, this is true of you. You remained confident and loyal. Even this one man, Antipas, was willing to go to death rather than deny Jesus. You see that? We're not always on neutral territory, and the things of Jesus and culture won't always mix. And Jesus here, by the way, he's not calling us to be culture despisers, okay? Okay? Not calling us to be culture despisers, because not all things in culture are bad. there are many good things about culture. Movies in and of themselves are not bad. You can enjoy a movie now and then. Drinking alcohol in and of itself is not bad. Secular music is not in and of itself bad, and to be honest, let's be honest, it's usually better than Christian music. okay? Let's be honest. But some things in culture are not neutral and Jesus is not calling us to be cultural despisers, but cultural discerners. Okay, cultural discerners that we would know when we enter the world around us that there is right and wrong. There's good and bad. There's godly and ungodly. There are things of Jesus and there are things of the evil one. And there are some things in cultures that we believe and that we do that in fact are satanic. And the question becomes this, Do you think there is anything in our culture today that is satanic? Jesus seems to think that there are. And if I can just channel my inner Seinfeld, okay, I'm going to put on my Seinfeld hat, and I'm going to channel my inner Cosmo Kramer. If you don't think that there is, well, that's just kooky talk, okay? Look at the world. There are bad things, and we can call a spade a spade. Now, that doesn't mean, right, that the world, we have to be those people that say, oh, the world out there, you know, it's going to heck in a handbasket, don't have to be those people right there's probably some cranky people in here that think that way I'm usually one of them but we don't have to say that but we do have to know that when Jesus looks at the world he is not saying good job guys to everything that's going on in our culture and he commends Pergamum here you know the difference satanic and godly well done well done so he commends them for this But he also, he wants to criticize what's false because he loves this church. And in verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. What are they? Verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what are these false teachings that Jesus is talking about? First, you have to look at Balaam. Who is Balaam? Well, Balaam is a figure from the Old Testament from the book of Numbers. And you can go look this up after. It's uh, Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And Balaam was kind of this pseudo prophet who was hired by this man, Balak. And Balak was the king of Moab. So when God had taken Israel out of Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness, they found themselves on the border of Moab and Balak is looking at this group of about a million people and he and the rest of Moab are fearful that they're gonna come in, that they're gonna take their land and they're gonna displace them. So Balak has a plan. He's gonna go and call Balaam this pseudo prophet, and he's going to come and he's going to say, hey, come and oversee Israel. We're going to go stand on a mountain and you're going to look out at Israel and I want you to curse them. I want you to bring God's curse down on these people. And so Balaam, the money's good, so he decides to go. And as he's on his way, God stops him and he says, hey, you can go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. So Balaam stands up there and he's overlooking, you know, this massive group of about a million Israelites and Balak thinks, okay, here it comes. He's going to bring the judgment. And Balaam goes with this effusive praise and blessing, just showers it on Israel. And he does it once, twice, and three times. And Balak's left scratching his head like, what did I pay you for, man? And it's kind of a funny story. But Balaam at the end says, hey, here's the thing, Balak, I can't curse them directly I can't do a full frontal attack and bring a curse on them, but there is a way through the back door. You can have the same result. So here's what you do. The first thing you do is you tempt them sexually, right? You tempt them sexually, and then you invite them to come into your worship, and then you go into their worship, and you take their attractive people, and what you do is you have kind of hands in both pots. That's what you'll do, and what you'll notice is there's gonna be a result. It's not gonna be a full frontal attack, Instead, you get in through the back door and you tempt them through sexual immorality and false religion. But the result is the same. They're two different methods, but same result. Israel will be corrupted. That was his plan. And Jesus to the church in Pergamum says, you have some there who hold to the same teachings, the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, those who say you can have hands in both pots you can have hands in both pots you can be godly and practice sexual immorality you can do that you can be godly and still dabble in other religious practices over here and the thing that's remarkable about this is that didn't just happen in Pergamum and it doesn't just happen in the church today which by the way it does happen in the church today but it also happened in many New Testament churches it's something that they often struggled with the Apostle Paul one of Jesus' earliest followers writes a letter to a church in Corinth and he wanted to get this message across to them. He said, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He continues on later, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Because prostitution was also a problem there. And his response, never, never. And did you notice one thing here in Revelation? This is really interesting. Did you notice who is purveying these teachings? Notice, Jesus says, you have some." there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. You have some there likewise who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Just some. In other words, it's not everybody, but a few select individuals and everybody is doing this, but everybody is turning a blind eye to it. They're being tolerant of it. And the thought is, right, well, what's the harm? What's the harm? It's not like we're denying Jesus. We just want to offer diverse perspectives and be open-minded, and we want to have greater, you know, you know what they probably thought? We can have greater influence in the Pergamum culture. We're just going to be a little lax on things like this, and guess what? It's going to give us inroads to the people who have power and prestige, and we can have greater influence for Jesus if we allow these things. That's their thought. We can be more effective in ministry if we do these things. What's the harm? But Jesus says, nonetheless, even though there are only some who teach these things, nonetheless, it is just like Balaam who put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And that word stumbling block is extremely significant. It's the Greek word "scandalon," where we get our English word scandal. And a scandalon literally is a trigger that releases a trap. Mousetrap, right? You pull back the hammer, which is spring-loaded. Then you take the holding arm and you put it across the hammer and the spring and you attach it to the scandalon, the trigger. And it usually looks like a piece of cheese. It usually looks deceptive. It usually looks good. And then you put it out overnight and then at 3 a.m., a mouse is going to come along. He's going to put its hand on that and think, okay, it's okay so far. But then he's going to put his hand on the scandalon, and... That's what false teaching does. It's a lot like a timeshare salesman. (laughs) All expenses paid trip, all inclusive, three night stay at this great resort on the Gulf of Mexico. And then you get there and the first thing that they say is, well, we're going to start out with a three hour seminar on how great this timeshare is going to be for your investment portfolio then you think okay I can put up with that but then the next day you think you're going to have a great breakfast but they invite you to come and you actually have to take a one-hour tour of the great amenities of, of, of the hotel and then they say well okay or you're thinking well I can just have a good lunch at least but then when you go to the lunch they have these placards that are telling you about all the great packages that they offer and then you think okay Finally, my wife and I, we get to enjoy this great time together and then they invite you to the salesman who's gonna say, hey, just have one hour with us and I'm gonna try and tell you why this would be a good investment for you. And if it is, then you can spend another hour and we're gonna call your loan financier. We're gonna make sure you have the funds sufficient in order to actually purchase this timeshare. Sounds like a great weekend, doesn't it? It lures you in and it traps you and the same thing is true with false teaching. It lures you in and the next thing you know, You have a condo every third week in May in Biloxi, Mississippi. (laughs) And they never tell you about the cockroaches. They never do. There's plenty in Biloxi, Mississippi, trust me. And friends, here's the point. We need to hear this. We need to hear this because Jesus is saying true beliefs and practices matter. False beliefs need correction. True beliefs about God. True beliefs about ourself. True beliefs about sin about false teachers, and about Jesus, Jesus says, we are a people who know what we believe and why we believe it, and we need to be those kind of people so we can spot false teaching when it crops up because tolerating it is not an option. It can't be. The stakes are too high. And just to be clear here, Jesus is not saying that we have to ostracize and speak in a condemning fashion to those who don't believe Jesus or follow Jesus, okay? not what Jesus is getting at here. Don Carson puts it really well. He says, clearly it is possible to be a contentious and condemnatory person, to be a fighting fundamentalist, the kind of person who's extremely narrow and extremely hate-filled. All of this is possible, and it is possible. You can swing the pendulum too far to the one way. But he says this, but it is also possible. In the name of Jesus and in the name of Jesus' example, maybe even in the name of Jesus' love, to be, by the way, these are Carson's words, not mine, to be so airy-fairy in our commitment to what Jesus actually says about salvation or about truth or about heaven and how you get there or about sexuality or about who Jesus is, that at the end of the day, you can have people teaching in your churches who are actually corrupting the church. And friends, if the letters that Jesus has written are clear, it is that false teaching is something he does not like. Okay, in the church to Ephesus, remember, they resisted the Nicolaitans and Jesus commended them for it. And then in this letter to Pergamum, they're tolerating false teachers and Jesus gives a warning. And then we're going to see next week in Thyatira, they actually, that church gives platform to false teachings and Jesus says, you are desperately sick. And then to the church in Sardis, they have completely embraced false teaching. Jesus says, you have forgotten. You've forgotten everything that you've heard and that you've received, and you are dead. You see the progression? And Jesus says here, true beliefs matter. And the teachings in Pergamum here are sexual immorality and idol feasts. What does our culture say about sexuality? Do you think God is pleased with how we portray women in our culture? Do you think God is pleased with how we talk about gender in our culture? Do you think Jesus is pleased with pornography and its widespread access? Do you think Jesus approves of homosexuality? Sexual morality, this is N.T. Wright, right? Sexual morality is a matter of the call of the creator God to faithful man plus woman marriage, reflecting the complementarity of heaven and earth themselves. It is the theme which finally emerges in the great scene at the end of the book of Revelation. Married love is a signpost to the faithfulness of the creator to his creation, The reason sexual immorality is so often coupled with idolatry as it is here is because such behavior points to different gods, to gods of blood and soil, race and power. It is a toxic mixture and the Christian has no business getting involved in it. Jesus is also concerned with idol feasts. Verse 14, did you notice that? He says, there are some of you there who teach that people might eat food sacrificed to idols. And in Pergamum, as in other Roman cities, the idol feasts were kind of the center of the city. It was the place of influence. That's where the important people gathered. These feasts were the places where the social and economic center of life in Pergamum. So if I don't go to this feast, the thought is I'm never gonna get that raise that my family desperately needs because that's where all, all the powerful people are. That's the people of influence. That's how I move up in the social and corporate ladder. If I don't go to these feasts, I might not get into my dream school. If I don't go to these feasts, people will think I'm weird and and they're going to even maybe ridicule me. And the false teachers are saying, guys, don't be so uptight. Don't be so uptight. Jesus is not that concerned with these things. Jesus wants you to succeed. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to get into your dream school. Why? He's not up there so uptight. Why why would he want to withhold these good things from you? Jesus wants you to have those good things. Does that sound familiar, by the way? hey, if you eat from that tree, it's a good tree. Why would God want to withhold that tree from you? It's a good thing. You desire it. You were born with a desire for it. You can have your hands in both pots, these false teachers are saying. You don't have to be exclusive to Jesus. He just wants to be a part of your life. You can have both social acceptance and Jesus, sexual freedom and Jesus, both. But Jesus, Jesus does care about these things. These things are not to be trifled with because Jesus is saying they're not just a stumbling block. By the way, Jesus has this beautiful twist of irony. You know what Nicolaitans means? It means followers of Nicholas. Nicholas literally means one who conquers the people. And Balaam, that means one who rules over the people. False teaching says you can have your hands in both pots under the banner of tolerance and freedom and approval and social influence. But it never offers the freedom and security it actually offers you. It enslaves you and rules over you. You want freedom, you get slavery. You want security, you get one who rules over you. Therefore, repent. Verse 16. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Unless this church repents, unless we repent, Jesus will come and bring the sword of judgment. With his sword, his word, he will promou- pronounce a word of judgment. He will pronounce a guilty verdict in his court of law and he will strike down. But Jesus in the same breath, this is verse 17, Jesus in the verse in verse 17, same breath, he says, I don't want that for you, Pergamum. I don't want that for you because I love you. Because the road of sexual immorality and social acceptability is not leading to your healing. In fact, it is leading to your death. And Tim Keller, he, he wrote a book, Counterfeit Gods, and he puts this very brilliantly. You know, we think it kind of comical that we would go to Asclepius, The god of healing and you know make offerings to it and give oblations to it or go to different gods gods of fulfillment or gods of uh, security but what keller points out so well is that we do the same thing it's just not as crass we still have the god of security we just call it money we have the god of fulfillment we just call it romantic love that that'll that'll get me ultimately fulfilled i'll just find the ultimate perfect partner Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be enslaved. I don't want you to fall into the trap by that which proposes to heal you but really enslaves you. I love you. I don't want that to happen to you. So he says, to those who have an ear, okay, so this is verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna is what God fed Israel with when he led them out of uh, Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness. And Moses made it clear. He said, Man doesn't live by this bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Moses was saying then, and what Jesus intends here is, You want to go to the idol feast. Friends, we all do, don't we? We want to be commendable, we want to be acceptable. You want to go to the idol feast so that you might be embraced and advanced and be accepted in this life. Jesus says, I have the bread of eternal life. It's the hidden manna. And I intend by my word not to enslave you and conquer you or put a stumbling block before you, but to really heal you, to free you, to speak to you a word of love and grace and forgiveness for you. That and that alone will satisfy And he illustrates this beautifully. Maybe these are the most beautiful words in the Bible in verse 17. He says, here's the hidden manna. He says, to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, in the court of law, there would have been these judges who had one of two stones, a black stone, and after the trial was over, they could cast you the black stone, which meant guilty and condemned. Or they would give you a white stone, which signified your innocence and your righteousness. And on this stone that declares you're righteous and forgiven, and Jesus says, will be a new name written that only the person who receives it known. What Jesus is saying here is on that stone will be written something about you that only you and God know. It's a level of deep intimacy. God knows you. Jesus knows you. He knows you at the core of your being. He knows that thing about you that you would never dare tell anybody else. He knows that about you, the most intimate part about you. Leonardo DiCaprio, you remember that movie Inception a couple years back? The whole premise of the movie is that Leonardo DiCaprio is a part of this special business that can enter into people's dreams and they can get into people's self-conscious or their subconscious. So they sneak in to this person's subconscious while they're dreaming. And it's always pictured the same way. In order to retrieve this intimate detail about people, they have to go to this island. And on this island is this large house. And in this large house is a basement. And in this basement is a boiler room. And in this boiler room, it's dark. And in this dark boiler room is a dresser. And in this dresser is a drawer. And inside that drawer is a lockbox. And once they get into that lockbox, they have the most intimate and the most shameful detail about that person's life. Friends, Jesus knows that thing. He knows that thing. And Jesus says, that very part of you is written on the stone that declares you are righteous and forgiven in my sight. Jesus knows the real you and he on the cross bore the sword of judgment so that that you, the the you you don't want to show the world might have the love and embrace and acceptance of the God of the universe. He loves you that much. Jesus on the cross took judgment and your condemnation in your place. He knows you. Close on this story. Ravi Zacharias recently, he, he told a story of a woman who fought in the Iraq war and she was on top of a roof in Iraq and suddenly grenades were lobbed onto the top of this roof. And as they're exploding around this woman, she's, she's injured horribly. Her left arm is severed from her body and she was unable to walk. So some fellow soldiers, some medics come and they scoop her up and they put her into an ambulance and they're driving away. And as they're driving away, she is weeping. Tears are streaming down her face. And they're like, is it because of the pain? We'll, get, we'll give you more morphine. And, and she's saying, no, I lost my wedding ring. I lost my wedding ring. And this woman, she was actually featured in the Super Bowl a couple years later, and she's sitting in a wheelchair, and she's never stood since this time. But during the Super Bowl, she stands for the first time, and she is hugged by her husband and embraced by her husband. And an interviewer, after this really tender exchange, said, hey, what's the best part of being able to stand again? And her response was, it was to be hugged by my husband to be embraced by my husband because I was fearful that in my wheelchair I had lost that embrace and I was constantly dealing with the fear that there's no way my husband could love me this way. Friends, Jesus says he loves you at the deepest core of your being. He loves the person that you would never show to the light of day. He died for that so you might receive a white stone (laughs) with a new name that only you and him know. And it'll continue on into eternity. Friends, Jesus loves you to that level. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your double-edged sword, the one that wounds us, God, that exposes us, that knows us, but also your wound that heals, your sword that heals, that speaks a word of forgiveness on us, that reminds us that you bore the sword of judgment, that we might be healed, that we might be cleansed, and that we might be righteous and forgiven in your sight. Thank you for loving us, And I pray that you would help us declare this true message and that you would give us your hidden manna, the words of eternal life, which we desperately need day by day. Thank you, Jesus, for that. We pray these things in your name by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.